John, what, 15? Yeah. And we are down... Verse 10. So we didn't even get through verse 10, huh? I don't, I don't remember if we did. Do you know, Peter? Do you... Somewhere around verse 9. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we start with verse uh, 7? Okay. Because it needs a little context here. Peter, would you read for us, please? Verses 7 to 11. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands, and remain in His love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. I don't remember we discussed verse 7. No, if you, you were... abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you want. I like the word abide. It seems to be <laughs> more appropriate. Well, it, it has a nuance that other words don't quite convey. Remain is the usual translation. But remain is kind of like, well, I stuck around. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Whereas abide is... Abide is you're willing, a willing staying by. Uh, and, and staying in something or someone. So if we really abide in Jesus, we can ask whatever we want and he will give it to us. Mm-hmm. And I can hear my students in God and Human Suffering class ask, why doesn't he? It's in the manner in which and, we ask. And, and, it, and it, it, it strikes me that, you know, the, the easiest response is, uh, well, are we really abiding in Him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we ask? Uh, doesn't that change what we want? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I still, have to, I still have to ask, does He always, can He always do this? What if what we want is for the church to become a loving church. Can he do that automatically? If it is his will. If it is not his will, who then will depose him? Why wouldn't it be his will the church become a loving church? I mean, I think it also has to do with like um, impinging on like humanity's autonomy, so to speak, or their free will. And so he doesn't want to like push us against our own free will. So if the people that are in the church do not want to become loving. The, the only obstacle to God being able to answer those kinds of prayers that are His will is us. Mm-hmm. Are the people, uh, are those who He wants to work with. He can't force them into line. He won't force them into line. That would, that would negate all their love. Their love would be I'm not genuine at all. It wouldn't be love. It would be forced compliance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, 
one of the things you need to learn about Jesus <laughs> and his language, he tends to talk in universals. And, and it sounds like they're far-reaching and, and completely applicable. Like, for example, uh, back in John 10, uh, verse 8. Uh, well, I'll read verse 7 so you get the context. So Jesus again said to them, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits. All. Who's all? What about Elijah? What about Isaiah? What about... So, the all can't include all. I mean, it's not all-inclusive. He's probably talking more specifically about those who claim to be messiahs that were rampant in his day. I mean, there were a lot of people running around claiming to be messiahs. But So that all is not all in the sense that we think of it. Keep in mind, this is Hebraic thinking. In Hebraic thinking, you talk in these terms, but you don't mean quite the, the extensiveness that we draw to it. In Greek thinking, all means all. Uh, and you get a, a one value for each word, and not in Hebrew. <laughs> Hebrew has many meanings for each word, and you have to go by context and, and set boundaries accordingly. So this, if you ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. To the extent that God is able to work on human hearts, absolutely. And I do think that if we were to ask unitedly every day for this, he could do things we, we can't imagine. So now is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. That must have been a little bit of a slam. Weren't they his disciples all these years? I mean, didn't weren't they the disciples of Rabbi Jesus? And he says, you may become my disciples, mm -hmm. implying that they really weren't. Well, I think it, it shows that it's more than just a, a title. Disciples is more than a title. It's like their action. Mm-hmm. The bearing of fruit. I just read this morning, you must be good before you can do good. And it's in the context of not judging and being critical and fault finding. Anything else in this uh, little brief section? We're, Doug, we're on uh, verses 7 to 11. Sorry. Uh, this is uh, chapter 15. In uh, the NIV, it says, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Proving it. Proving it. Yeah. Or it's the idea of, of becoming. Keep in mind, again, Hebrew thinking is dynamic. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, even the word become or be is a dynamic, active verb. So becoming my disciples. Is this little three verse um, seven through nine, or like, like a chiasm? Not really, because I mean it starts with abide and then it ends with abide. In that sense. Well, verse ten kind of gives us a definition of abide. Oh, it does. Okay. Mm -hmm. It could be nine. Verse nine we haven't focused on. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. 
Now, if you think of God's love as conditional, it must sound amazing to the disciples to hear that God loves his son. They have no problem with that. That's obvious. They all know about the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But that he, that Jesus loves them as the Father loves him. If they have a humble sense of themselves and not, don't feel entitled. That must seem amazing. Yeah. I, I, this is, you know, Peterson's paraphrase, I think, but I, I love the way he puts it here. He says, I've loved you the way my Father has loved me. Make yourself at home in my love. <laughs> it's a neat oh, way to put that. it. I love that. Now that's a good definition <laughs> of abide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Make yourself at home. If you keep my commandments, you'll remain intimately at home in my love. That's what I've done. Uh, that's just powerful. God is that safe place where we can be home. You know what you mentioned there before, made me think of this passage in Steps of Christ. She says, the angels of God stand in amazement with our great need, and we ask so seldom. Like you said, what what he could do in us and through us and for us if we and and I I I struggle with that issue actually myself. I actually struggle with asking, and part of it has to do with some things in my childhood. But part of it, I wonder if it's my pride or something. I think you nailed it on the head because think about this: one of the commands was uh, that the woman to utilize the headdress or head covering when praying or prophesying, because women prophesy, or when they enter the church or synagogue. But we see that the women do not wear the headdress today because of the way it's presented by Satan, that it's denigrating to the woman. And yet, the commands say it is a sign of what? Quote, power, end quote. It's heartbreaking. I think it's just in our sinful genes to, to want to do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It's an automatic default. It's a default of the... Mm. Yeah. And then we're... Yeah, and, and our whole world and culture, it, it, we're not trained to be trusted. You know, it's all that self-sufficient thing. I know it must be other cultures. Did, did the Hebrews have this issue? Like, you know, I think this is kind of Americanism that we hear independent, self-sufficient, da 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 Is the, any of the ancient culture, did they deal with that issue? Or was it, is that, just, is that a real sinful base? Or the, with the Hebrews, what did you think? Can you remember uh, how God didn't want them to fight their way into Canaan? Oh, and right. he they wanted to do it. <laughs> we can do this. Okay. And all that the Lord has said, we can do, we, we will do at the Lord of Sinai? Universal Absolutely. Thing, and everything changes after that in terms of how the covenant is presented. See, I think the original covenant was given in, in nine, chapter 19 uh, before God spoke the Ten Commandments. When he said, I will, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was the covenant. That was a promise, flat out promise. These are the words you are to say to Israel, he says to Moses. So Moses goes down. He repeats the words not to the whole people, but to the elders. And the elders say, all the Lord has said we will do. Well, who told them they were to do that? 
And then from then on, the covenant that I really believed the Ten Commandments were meant to be part of a marriage covenant. That covenant turned into an ancient Near Eastern treaty. And eventually the uh, curses were added. And the curses aren't with the covenant. They're separated from the Sinai, actual Sinai covenant. They're separated. They're added later. On a practical level, that construct, where I've had a few times in my life where I just totally know I've t I had no chance of solving the solutions way beyond me. And you just say, Lord Jesus, I am... I, I, I'm just hopeless here. Just take over. And he does things that is way beyond. And very seldom we're at that posture. Or <laughs> I'm very seldom at that posture. I'm kind of, and, and we're kind of trained that way, even in spiritual. Well, you know, God will help you when you... God helps those who help themselves. Help themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and say, is that... What is That's not scriptural. I mean, actually, Ellen White does say it, but um, it's Ben Franklin in origin. <laughs> yeah, God wound up the world like a clock and left it to us to run. See, excellent point, though, because that is when the spirit of our Lord works the most when we are in our weakness. Yeah, and then, and when you fully... Totally weakness. I give up. I just can't do it. There's no way. This is above my head. Well, thank you. You finally. <laughs> you on. take it, Lord. And, then, and that's, you know, that's the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that you follow that goes before us. Hmm. So, um, I, I think about Paul. The story is, and I don't think we catch the storyline in reading First and Second Corinthians. But the storyline is that the Corinthian church was a mess and not recognizing it and, and totally out of order. I mean, they had multiple issues going on in that church. And Paul uh, tried counseling them from afar by letters. And he actually made a visit to them. And apparently he was afflicted with a terrible illness while he was there. We don't know if his eyesight was a problem. He does talk about the Corinthians would have plucked out their eyes for him um, if they could have given them to him. But we don't know what the nature of his problem was. But he was weak. He was very weak, and he couldn't he couldn't nail the problems, and he couldn't forthrightly deal with them in his weakness. And he went away feeling like a failure. And he said three times, "I prayed to the Lord, please take this thorn in my side from me." And God said, my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And I think, I think about that, and I think, yeah. They, they told him, your bodily presence is weak, but your letters are weighty and strong. Oh, that was, uh, the word out there. But I think that God knew Paul. That if he had been strong, Paul would have stood up on his own strength and clobbered those <laughs> Corinthians. <laughs> Shame on you! You're be, you're acting terrible. Stop it! You know, and and, and only would have pushed them in deeper. His weakness yeah. could be more effective. Yeah. Yeah. My grace 
God didn't say my power, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect. You see, if I gave you all the strength, Paul, your pre-Damascus road might come back to haunt you. I think his powerful sermon on Mars Hill, before we're converted, you know, his logic was wonderful, was, but it wasn't Christ and him crucified. You know, well, the power of God works different than we. The power of God is different than we think. <laughs> and comes in ways we least expect it sometimes. And it, to me, the only power of God is love. Um, I had a student in God and Human Suffering class last spring quarter. I teach that class now twice a year, so it's much on my mind, who had suffered quite a bit in his life. But one of the things he was aware of and, and familiar with was quantum physics. And I had never heard anybody really explain quantum physics to a person I could understand because I'm not a physicist at all. He started talking about quantas. Quantas are light particles that are so small you can't hardly measure them. Now, I remember back in the day when I was in sixth grade and we learned about atoms that you couldn't see and you couldn't measure. And now we know we can see them and we can measure them. But um, So maybe someday we'll be able to see quantas. But quantas are these particles of light that are life-giving. Does that remind you of anything? What about let there be light? Let there be quantas? But the, the, the way he described it, those quantas aren't just light. They resemble love and how it works. And, and my, my question is, well, we understand God is a consuming fire that Lucifer walked in the stones of fire and, and that rested around the throne of God, that God is, dwells in light unapproachable, that, his, that he is, is a, just this glorious, light-giving being. And then you go to Exodus 33 and 34. I will make all my glory pass before you, he says to Moses. And that's when Moses asked to see God's glory. God doesn't, I, I actually misquoted what God says. God did not say, I will make all my glory pass before you. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Moses asked to see his glory. God says, I will show you my goodness. And he says, but you can't see my face. Because if you see my, my face, you can't see me and live. No one can see me and live. So I will show you my back side. Now you have to understand ancient Near Eastern perceptions to understand what that, the significance of that is. Uh, when a king had a subject come into him who was in trouble with him, if the king turned his face away, that subject was dead. So to turn away the face, to turn one's back on someone, in ancient Near Eastern idiom, is to show them your wrath. It's to exclude them from favor. It is their death knell. But if you show your face and you smile, that expression has to do with showing favor and acceptance. 
Uh, David, for example, banishes Absalom from the, sea, from the scene because he killed his brother Adonijah to keep him from taking the throne. The, the text says that David says, I will not see his face. Now, God says, you can't see my face and live. But I'll show you my back. My grace would destroy you. My wrath you can handle. It's totally flipped. So Moses sees God's backside and God describes his face. He pronounces his name, Yahweh, Yahweh. God, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the sins of the fathers upon the sons to the third and fourth generation. That last part is not punitive. It is consequences. It's natural consequences. So God describes his face. Moses sees only his backside comes off the mountain, has to put a veil on his face because the people are so terrified they can't be near him. His reflection of God's wrath, which is still less love because God is not two-faced, was so intense the people couldn't handle it. If you, if you understand that, those quantas are born of love. They are not just particles of light. I don't believe that in God he separates everything into buckets like we do. Physics over here, chemistry over here, uh, love over here, trust over here. No, it's a perfect, complete whole with God. That's his love. His, that's the only kind of power he has. And when Satan fell, he fell trying to split that atom or that quanta and separate love from power. And he put love into a bu bucket named weakness and power into a bucket named greatness. Well, that's that is cool. Yeah, but uh, if you set, yeah, if you separate love from power, you get evil. Exactly. Is not our leadership today engaged in power and control? Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear of Carson Johnson? He was a professor at the seminary when I was there. He lived in efficiency. He, he had a couple of doctors, one in philosophy. And he, he, he wrote a book called Man the Indivisible, the only book he ever got published. The, the Swedish government published it for him. He was just really poor, but every summer he'd go over a different place in Europe and just lecture. Really interesting guy. But his, his concept, I remember, he, would, he says it's like, it's like a piece of paper. I can talk about this side, I can talk about this side. But if you separate them, he would do that with like works and faith. Mm -hmm. But if you separate them, they cease to exist. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of this stuff mm -hmm. that we want to separate, but it must be the Hebraic 
concept. This stuff had to be together, or it didn't. Yeah. The Hebrew, the Hebrew concept is always holistic. Yeah. So you don't, you don't them. separate them into buckets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You destroy it. Yeah. That's amazing. That. Well, if you split, it's less like splitting the atom. You have atomic good explosion. Example. <laughs> good example. <laughs> Oh, wow. Mm. Well, also in the Hebrew, too, it's more musical or more song. Mm -hmm. uh, when they don't read scripture, <laughs> you watch the, the, the rabbis or the men, and each one, will, each one will have scripture. And it's a song, and they're singing. And once this one's finished, then this one begins to sing. And it's astounding, the differences between. Yeah, yeah. It's song, it's story, it's poetry, it's, it's, it's beauty. Really. Uh, and, and what has happened, because we've separated everything, we, it's like dissecting a frog. Once you've dissected it, it's no longer a frog. It's a bunch of body parts from the yeah, frog. And so, you've lost its beauty, you've lost its... Yeah, Kim. Um, this goes along with... I didn't want to interrupt you, though. The, the, uh, what we learned... Uh, in one of my religion classes from another professor is um, that philosophy has reduced everything. It's called reductionism. It, you, you probably know more about that. So is that kind of what we're talking about here? That, you know, to, you said the, the Hebrew mind was holistic in that everything was together mm -hmm. and that through philosophy of some sorts this has been maybe you know an instrument used to separate everything so that we don't see things so so clearly as a whole I'm not a philosopher so I'm not going to touch that one uh, but um, the thing the thing that it comes to me is that the power of wholeness is its its beauty it is its value as a whole. It is its ability to function as a whole. The dissected frog can't function on its own. And, and here's, here's what I think has happened. As, as Peter mentioned, we get into these traps of wanting to control everything. Our life on this planet has unraveled. It has separated itself. We have separated everything. Um, and that has made us disjointed and dysfunctional. And as a result, we have high anxiety. And we master our anxiety by controlling everything around us. It's hyper... Jacob, I, I, I was watching a video of a very, 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 very obsessive-compulsive person who has to turn on and turn off the lights about 18 times before he's certain he's turned them on and off. And... Um, he has to constantly wash his hands because of germs and stuff. That's an extreme example. But we're all kind of in that mode of wanting to substitute experiencing God's love that captures our hearts, that transforms our lives, that uses us to bless others. Where we live in the moment, we live outside ourselves for others. And, and instead we try to control others. We try to control the particles. We try to control everything. Uh, and that leads us to dissection and separation and, and all these mechanisms. That's the, the Greek way. 
the Greek way is to know everything and knowledge becomes control. Whereas knowledge in the Bible, which is very important to the Bible, is experience. So in Greek thought, you have this linear uh, way of looking at things where you have an absolute uh, value that can't be changed, that's inflexible. Our inflexibility, our being so right, uh, our a tendency to judge and criticize other people is all part of that, that value system of trying to control things. And we think if we can judge another person, we're more righteous somehow which is totally opposite. You know, um, when I went to work for New Life, they, uh, Dr. Townsend, Cloud, the guys that developed their theory for healing as Christian therapists, their whole philosophy of healing they got from Scripture, they put a text below every mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. to make sure they're staying centered, is that the whole healing process, when we have brokenness, we separate the parts. Like, if I'm in pain, I gotta, I gotta separate. I gotta separate from the whole to kind of survive or the anxiety. And then so the whole process of healing is bringing bringing together those separated parts, physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, to that wholeness again. And then as soon as we we pull one away or pull one away, that's the level of brokenness we are. And I, I never heard that in any of my graduate, humanistic graduate training, <laughs> you know, that, that, uh, that that was a neat spiritual construct. That, uh, because it's just what we it do is making It is making humans whole. We haven't grasped that fully yet. We think if we take care of diet and we do the eight natural remedies, uh, we've done it. But it's so much bigger than that. It is. It is achieving that. I had this this um, dream when I went up to Clear like a couple of years ago after retired that we were going to start this. We were starting this wellness thing, and we we're going to our, our actually uh, consultant rooms were we were named eight natural doctors. Well, middle management wouldn't let us incorporate the spiritual and these other things the way we wanted. But you know that's um, I've always dreamed because often what happens. We, we try to fix the mental thing, or we try to fix the physical thing. We try to fix the side. I always dreamed of working at a clinic where we did it simultaneously. I really believe Jesus healed simultaneously. He did. He did. Completely. Yeah. I, I, I went to sleep last night meditating on one of my favorite stories of Jesus, and that is this, this woman who comes in with scoliosis like this into church. And uh, she's sitting, she's, I mean... If you understand how the Jewish synagogue was built, the women sat either on the side behind a veil, which I think is a later development. I really think they sat in the back, because that's how it was in the Jerusalem temple. They sat in the back. The men sat in the front. And then the rabbis were up in the, in the very front. Jesus is up in the very front. Sees this woman walking in. She's going to sit down in the women's section, and he calls her to him. She has to walk up through the men's section oh all the way up to Jesus in the rabbi's section. Mm. No woman was allowed up there. Mm. What is Jesus doing? Mm. And more than that, he wasn't supposed to be looking at a woman. Let alone calling her to him. 
What is he thinking? And then she comes up and he puts his hands on her. Can you imagine? I want to sleep thinking about that. <laughs> what it would be like to be her. Puts his hands on her. And she puts his hand on, on her and she and then he expels the disease, which was considered by the people to be demonic. We know it today of scoliosis. The Or at least that's what we call it. What if indeed is, like you <clears throat> mentioned a couple months back, what if that also has been flipped around on us? It it could be. I mean there In other words in other words, today or what would then have been <coughs> called demonic possession today, we call it epilepsy. Uh, um, so there's I see what there you're saying. Is, there sides. is there is epilepsy because I I've had it actually in focal seizures where they actually put electrodes on you and and you you can see the waves uh, of of what's happening. It's it's when the brain goes awry. There is there are real things to view everything as demonic is Babylonian. <laughs> it comes from the Babylonians and the Jews got really into that when they were in Babylonian captivity. That doesn't mean there isn't real demon possession. But it, but we have to be careful uh, and irrational about it. The thing is that Jesus doesn't say she's demon-possessed. So what happens is, he, he puts his hands on her, he, he makes her whole, and she straightens up. Imagine, oh, here she goes. And she's praising God in front of the whole congregation. I mean, it's just like, oh no, what has Jesus done now? And women can't do that. And women can't do that. And uh, so then the person in charge of the synagogue stands up and he says, there are six days in which you can come for healing. What you don't need to come on the Sabbath day. And Jesus looks at him and you can almost sense his indignation. He says, would you not pull an ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath day? And should not this woman, who has been oppressed, and here's the word Jesus used, oppressed by Satan for 18 years, be liberated on the Sabbath day? What synagogue was that? You know, I'm thinking it was Capernaum, but I may be wrong on that. I'm not sure it's mentioned, actually. But to me, that is Jesus' healing. Every word he said in that incident, his calling her to him, his, his uh, making her wa walk past all, probably everybody that had judged her. And, and publicly, very publicly. I mean, he could have just spoken the word and she'd be fine. And it'd be all quiet and under the rug and, and nobody would know and she wouldn't be exonerated. She wouldn't have her soul and her honor and her, her reputation and everything was stored. Everything And and you watch this the leper that come first leper that comes to Jesus. The untouchables. Jesus put his hand on. And you imagine that feeling restored of that hand on his shoulder. It's powerful. I had a friend who actually wrote 
the story of the leper as his own story. It's just moving. Just very moving. Um, and uh, let, me, let me say this, that if you want to find healing in Scripture, take your favorite story and make it your own. You become that person. You can, you can change details according to your situation and put Jesus in that story. And each one of these examples that you used, each one of those people had one thing in common, and that was their capacity to receive. Mm -hmm. I've often thought, you know, I, I, I've asked God many times, who are your people? And I've often thought that the ones that are God's people are the people who are on their knees and are needy, very needy. Not the ones who have prestige and power. This, you made me think of this same old professor I have, but he, it, it, I never can kind of get my mind around but one thing he would constantly tell you, you know, he was grappling with, grappling with the same thing and says, what is, you'd say, what is Jesus's greatest moment? What is this greatest attribute and characteristic? And, and you know, we'd come up off the cross or this. Or, it's, it's, it's his coming downness. And, he, you know, I think he kind of touched into something that was, you know, really deep. And this was, you know, it says we're going to study for eternity, the incarnation. See, How? See, the, the thing is, we think we have to lower ourselves. The only thing we have to do is be ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> We're already <laughs> <laughs> we, we, think, we think in those terms so much that we don't grasp that humility is who we were made to be. This is, this is who we were made to be. This is who God really is. What Jesus does in coming down is, is he, he humbled himself, yes, but that's the heart of God. He exhibited the heart of God. And, and I've long felt that the reason God had to thunder from Sinai and be portrayed in the Old Testament as, as powerful is because he was so humble the people just didn't want to give him any credits. He wasn't, he wasn't proud and arrogant like ancient Near Eastern kings. He wasn't proud and arrogant like Baal and Marduk. Do you think it's also to humble them? Because that's kind of where, that's the basic principle of his kingdom, right. is humility. Without that, it can't work. Right. So maybe he showed his power to yeah. help, help and, 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 and them, and to, to respect him, and to, to, mm -hmm. to find humility in themselves. And that's what, what stands out in Numbers 12. When it says, now the man Moses was very humble, more so than any other man. Yeah, yes. That's why the people were constantly wanting to stone him. He was too humble. He never led Israel through the wilderness. The times when he did is when he led them astray. <laughs> the only, he only went to God, got what God wanted them to do, told the people. That's all he did. That's the role he played. I mean, Moses thought he was completely unqualified for the position when God called him. He constantly said, like, not me, not me. Yeah. 
Mm. And how and many of us have that same feeling? But I, but I think it's because of that, like that he realized he had to completely depend on God for. So and how many of us have that same feeling? <laughs> And we interpret it as weakness, humbleness, so I often weakness. Well, God's weakness is greater than all, says Paul. Uh, God has ordained that the the uh, oh, I can't think of how that goes, but he, he has a long list. We have a couple. Or there's a few human examples. You, you know, that stuff is so powerful. I remember way back. Mother Teresa came to Harvard, was doing it like a chapel presentation. She stood up and says, "Boys and girls, you are sinning." And this was in the '60s and the whole cultural revolution. <laughs> and they ended up giving her a standing ovation. But because of her humility mm-hmm. and who she was, what she had incredible authority. She could stand up at Harvard and and say those kind of things, you know. But uh, you know, we we often want Mother Teresa was humble, but she could be very powerful. I know. Uh, and and uh, there's a story, a rather sad story, that I heard. Of, uh, somebody from Loma Linda took a team of medical students to work with Mother Teresa. And I guess they were doing a clerkship, or probably a clinical there. And uh, one, of the, one of the medical students was encountering a man who was just a bag of bones. He was just in terrible shape. He was dying. He was on the in the street in the gutter, um, and he was filthy and he was stenchy and and just emaciated and, and grotesque. It was just awful. And she, I told him to pick up this man to start carrying him to her facility. And and the student picked, started to pick him up, and they lost it, and he dropped the man. Mother Teresa was right there. She swiftly reached in and, and picked him up before he reached the ground. And then she, they, once they got him transported, she said to the director who had brought the students, you send him back home. We don't need him. You know, it, it, is, it, is, it takes humility to love. There is no love apart from humility. And humility is not beating up ourselves. <laughs> that is not humility. Mm-hmm. Humility is being who we really are at the baseline. Being, not being high and mighty. Being what we really are. We are I am just me. And I have no pretensions. And no, no authority. And no power of myself. And I am a pile of dirt with breath. Here today, gone tomorrow. Just a blip on the radar screen. But in God, uh, God's eyes, infinitely valuable. And that's, that's important that we recognize our value because we can't recognize other people's value if we don't. Uh, but our value is born of creation. It, is, it, is, it comes because we were created by God. So our value comes from Him. It does not come from ourselves. Created by God in the image yeah. of God. He called this good. No, he didn't. Hmm? Oh, he said it was good, didn't he? No, he didn't. 
He said everything else in, in Genesis is good, but not human beings. My professor, Jacob Milgram at University of California, pointed that out in class one night. And I was like, duh. <laughs> um, no, he never pronounced us good. Why? That's, to me, an allusion to chapter 3, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We had the ability to know good and evil, to gain that knowledge. So we're not good if you know good and evil. It's the potential of choice to be evil. So we, as creatures of choice, could not have that be that goodness. That intrinsic goodness. Yet we have the knowledge of evil. Uh, we do, because of our choice. Not because God wanted it. Well, we didn't get very far, did we? <laughs> All right, let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray that we may keep your face and the good and the bad times ever before us. Because ultimately it is your love that gives us the humility we need. And the reason many people reject your love is because it's too weak and too humble for them. We pray that we may truly receive your love because your love does not just make us feel warm and good inside. Your love calls us out to treat others the way you do. May we do this in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.